And it may be in a way that he operates that may be a little bit different from how we would think. But when we think about a faith that delights Jesus, we're not talking about like a particular faith when it comes to like the Christian faith as opposed to the Mormon faith or the, or the um, Muslim faith or the Jehovah's Witness type of faith. We're not necessarily talking about that. We're talking about within the Christian realm in our Christian life, what type of faith delights Jesus. When we look at this, uh, we look at, as far as the last passage we looked at in Mark 7, verses 1 to 23, we saw the Pharisees. The Pharisees were ones who knew the word well. In fact, they knew the word so well that they began to develop some traditions around that to help protect and defense the word. And over time, over about a time of 200 years, that fencing turned into something that shouldn't have. Those traditions began to mean more than the word of God itself. And if anybody was, de- was deemed clean and pure in that culture, it would have been the Pharisees and the scribes. So now Jesus decides that he is going to finally get some rest that he's been wanting for at least the last two or three passages we've been going over. But the crowds wouldn't let him do it. So he's like, okay, so I'm going to venture over into non-Jewish pagan territory. This is the only time that Jesus did this in his ministry. He went over into the area of Tyre and Sidon, which is about 20 miles uh, north of where Galilee was. And so he's there and he says, he, he, he says that he finds him a house. He, so he's thinking, I'm going to be able to get some rest here. But it says in the passage that he entered the house, did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. It's a reminder of how the word does go out into the world and how the word is meant to go out into the world. I fear that maybe for many of us, we think that the word is supposed to stay in here in our own little holy huddle, that it's okay for us to be able to talk about the word with people that already believe the word. But when we get out into the culture, when we get out into the marketplace and our jobs and our schools, even in our homes, that we don't need to be talking about that because we believe in a live and let live type of personality and a type of personalities and a type of society. If that works for you, then that works for you. This works for me. And so I'll let you live and you let me live and live and let live and we all just live. And yet we see here that there was something about Jesus and what he was doing and specifically that he was healing people that made it over into other areas that did not necessarily believe the Bible or the Torah or the scriptures or any of that. But yet when Jesus showed up, there was something so compelling about him that people started crowding in, crowding in, and crowding in. As we get into this passage, there's a couple of things in this passage that I'm sure if you're paying attention, which I hope you were, it's always good to pay attention to the word. But if you, I hope as you're reading that, that there was probably a couple of things that may have come up. And if you know a parallel passage in Matthew 15, that Jesus, when this Syrophoenician woman begins to run up to him and talk to him, Jesus doesn't respond to her for quite a while. In fact, it talks about that, you know, that he did not answer her a word was the actual verse in verse 23 of chapter 15 in Matthew. That, that seems very un-Christ-like for Christ to do. Because you'd think that someone shows up and is wanting something from Jesus that he would begin to answer immediately. And then when he finally does answer her, he calls her a dog. 
Now, this, there's no cultural, there, there's some cultural understandings of this, but calling somebody a dog in any culture, it's a problem. Somebody were, and we're not talking about, hey, dog, what's up? We're not talking about that. I can't even pull that off. I can't pull that off at all. I do not have enough cool factor in me, and I never did, to be able to pull that off. But sometimes you would hear people talking like that. Hey, dog, what's up? I actually said that one time to a friend of mine in Kentucky, and he, he was like, don't ever do that to me. <laughs> and I think there was really two reasons. One, he didn't appreciate being called dog, and he's like, you can't pull that off. Stop it. Just, just okay. But you see, you see what's going on here. And so this is one of those passages where you've got to be careful that you're not reading this with 21st century eyes and listening to it with 21st century ears. There is something Jesus is communicating. And as we're reading this, it seems clear that this woman did not lean into the offense of it. That she just leaned into what was going on and rode along with it and answered Jesus back in such a way that Jesus was like, that's how you respond. That's what it's about. And evidently there's something that's going on here that where we're looking at it thinking, man, Jesus, why are you talking to them like that? This woman is not responding that way. So what, what exactly is going on? Well, what's going on is, is Jesus is saying, this woman's faith delights me. And you all better listen to it because you all think that the faith of the Pharisees and the Sadducees or the Pharisees and the scribes had, you think that's delightful and that's what to emulate? No, it's this woman that's not even part of the Jewish community that's delighting me. What's going on here? Well, first of all, here's what kind of faith that delights Jesus. One, it's an immediate faith. It's a faith that is going after Jesus right away. Something is going on, just suppose something is going on in your life and you're having a hard time. It's not a faith that is superficial and circumstantial. Superficial meaning, well, I'm going to trust Jesus, but as soon as something doesn't go my way, we have a couple of cats at the house and they do that with each other. When they get into the the room with each other and they're paying attention to each other, they start doing this business. And that's sometimes what we end up doing. You know, something doesn't go my way, oh, claws come out. Or circumstantial. Superficial, circumstantial. Things don't go your way when you want them to. God, you must not be who you say you are. And what we're doing is we're putting our timetable on him. So when it's talking about here, it says immediately a woman. This woman wasn't waiting around. This woman had a need and she saw Jesus, boom, on our way. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. No waiting, no wandering, no trying to get yourself all fixed up before you come to Jesus. Just came to Jesus. And so as this house served as a place of rest, this house was also going to begin to serve as a place of worship. The immediate faith isn't always shown in the scriptures, just like it's not always shown in us. Like, probably next month as we start getting into Christmas, you're going to be hearing a little bit about the differences between the the faith of Zechariah, who is a priest, and the faith of Mary, who's a teenager. Zechariah, he and Elizabeth were going to be the parents of John the baptizer. Um, They had a couple of things going on with them. One was, she was barren, and they were old. Yeah, we, we can say advanced in years, that's how they talked about, you know, Elizabeth. They were both old. They were past childbearing years. 
Angel shows up while he's, while he's ministering and worshiping. You're going to have a kid, and this kid is going to be the one who's going to usher in the Messiah. And he says, how can these things be? And that preacher's mouth was shut for nine months. Those of us who are preachers, it's hard for us to stop talking. You give us a little bit, we're going to take a whole big heap. Mary asked the same question, but she was asking in faith, how will this be? Because you know, she was so young and she had never been with a man. But Zechariah had a hesitating faith. Mary didn't. Zechariah didn't say, whatever you say, Lord, I'm in. Abraham was the same way, although Abraham over time, when Abraham and Sarah heard, Abraham 75, Sarah 65, 66, and they get this message that they're going to have a son, even though they were old and they were past childbearing years. Abraham believed, 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 believed. But 11 years in, they began to wonder, okay, is it really going to be through us or is it going to be through somebody else? And so they took the shortcut. And so what does Sarah do? Hey, you know what? Here's my handmaiden, husband of mine. Here you go. Maybe this is the way we could do it. So they were hesitating in believing. It wasn't an immediate faith. They were hesitating in believing that God was going to do what he was, said he was going to do. And we've been suffering the ramifications of that today because Ishmael is the father of all the Arabic nations. And so the Arabs and the Jews, even to this day, are still fighting each other. All because of one incident on one night based upon one decision that was trying to shortcut the promises of God. Now, Abraham did have to wait 24 years. Abraham was 99. Sarah was 90. But there there still has to be an immediate faith where you're waking up every day. I'm going to trust the promises of God. I'm going to trust. Every hour, I'm going to trust the promises of God. Temptations are going to come up. Nope, I'm going to trust the promises and the person of God. I'm going to trust, trust, trust all the way out. But we have to continue as we approach the day, immediately make that covenant. I am going to trust what God has called me to do immediately. Don't wait. So the sec- that's one thing that the, this woman did. Rushed up, fell at his feet. She knew he could help. The second type of faith that Jesus delights in, well, this is all under one umbrella, but it's a desperate and a persistent faith. See, sometimes I think, especially in our Baptist world, we don't like to come off looking desperate. We like to come off looking cool. We don't want anybody, we don't want to really show a lot of emotion in our worship services. We want to make sure, you know, we, we process. We're processors, right? And so if something comes across us, probably the bo- most you're going to get out of somebody is, Amen. That's what you're going to get. And that's okay. Everybody is wired very, very differently. But don't mistake that when we get into corporate worship from a personal worship of when something is going on, there is a persistent and a desperate faith. We've got to have him all the time. We can't let ourselves be put in any position that is going to undermine anything that has to do with our witness of Christ. And so when we look at this, it says here that this, the, the woman was a Gentile, which means non-Jew, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast out of the demon, a demon out of her daughter. This was, this was not worrying about whether you're going to craft your prayers right. We have a template in our Christianese culture. We have a template about how we pray. And we're not going to worry, we're not going to worry about, about, are we crafting the prayer right? 
No, there, sometimes you just got to let it fly. There is a desperation that's, that's going on, Lord. I have this need. I trust you. Can you help? And we continually come at him. But are we willing to risk looking undignified about it? Are we willing to, to risk our reputation? Or are we just going to make sure that we're just going to stay right here because that's the expectation. We're going to stay right here and we're not going to step out of this as far as how we look in our desperation for Jesus. In Luke 18, we see a piece of desperation that's here where, there, where it talks about that there's this woman. It's a parable of the persistent widow. And this is the one, of the t- one of the times where Jesus begins to give us the punchline at the beginning. This is no joke, by the way. But he gives us the punchline at the beginning and then tells the story. He says in verse 1 of Luke 18, and he told them a parable to the effect that they ought to always pray and not lose heart. If you're prayed and then you don't feel like he's answering you in a certain amount of time and you begin to get discouraged, yeah, I think we've all been there. If we're honest, again, are you willing to risk your reputation and, not, and look undignified to be able to admit that, yeah, there's some times where it doesn't seem that God is an on-time God? But it says here in the parable, Jesus said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary for a while he refused. For a while he refused and afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet yet because this widow keeps bothering me. I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. Love that. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give give justice to them and speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? And that last little question he's saying is that when... You've got to remember, when God seems silent, that doesn't mean he's absent. When God seems silent, he is always moving, he is always working in you. He's not absent. But when God seems silent, and this is what was going on in the parallel passage in Matthew 15. Remember, it says that Jesus didn't answer her a word. She's begging, she's falling down at his feet, didn't answer a word. What's going on? What's going on is Jesus is exposing to us what kind of faith we have. I told you a number of years ago, and in fact, it was when I was preaching through Psalm 6. It was about three or four summers ago. That there was a time for about a year I did not feel God. And I remember working at a Winn-Dixie. Remember Winn-Dixie's? I remember working at a Winn-Dixie in the produce department. And it felt like this, this, this head of lettuce weighed about 500 pounds. Because I felt like I was wanting him so badly. But I felt like he was just not there. And I feel like I'm picking up this bowling ball every time. Going from the box to the rack. From the box to the rack. And I'm thankful I had people in my life to say, keep seeking, keep going after him, keep looking, keep reading the scriptures. I was in my Bible so much then, just praying, God, give me something until the penny dropped. And finally, he did. But he was working in me 
in that time where it didn't seem like that he was there. Psalm 109, verse 1, be, be not silent, O God, of my praise. The psalmists were feeling through that as well. The psalmists are, are very honest because when he said, be not silent, O God, of my praise, he started mentioning all of the stuff that people were doing to him and saying to him. And even when he would say something to them, they'd take it wrong and they'd twist it and he couldn't get out of it. And he felt like God was silent because he wasn't doing anything wrong and yet he was still under this oppression. We've got to realize that we don't have a microwave Christianity. Christianity is about marinating. It's a simmering. You've got to make sure that all the stuff is working its way in when, when you're there. Because if you're just, if you're saying, well, I'm gonna, I, I'm going through this thing, and so I'm gonna, I'm gonna pray to God. And I'm gonna pray to God that He gets me out of it. Well, He may not get you out of it right there. See? He's not God. No, you're not God. You don't know what he's doing in you. There may be something he's working in you right now that the only way that you could learn it is through the valley. God is a God that uses suffering as a classroom to teach us about things that we would never learn if things were going smoothly. And some of you know that. Some of you realize that you're learning things about God and about yourself through the suffering. Lean into that. Lean into what he's trying to show you because there is not one wasted motion with God, not one wasted word, not one wasted nanosecond when it comes to how he's working in and through you. There has to be a desperate and persistent faith even when you may not feel him. And that's what was going on with this lady. This lady was not being answered and she kept at him and kept at him and kept at him. We have to realize what this is all about. The Pharisees and the scribes knew the word. Now, that's not a bad thing, but they leveraged that for their personal and professional reputation. A lot of pastors are doing that. Well, I, I, I see the pastor up there, and when he talks, people listen. Uh, you, you would hope so. You would want that. Diane mentioned this a couple of, couple of weeks ago when I was 22 years old, and I'm a music minister, not a worship leader. Right back then, they were music ministers. Would you take your hymnals and open to 340? We're going to sing first, second, last. Boom. And I was 22 years old, and I said this, would you please stand? And people who could have been my great-grandparent listened to what I said. I was the youngest of three kids. I have a, I have a brother that's 13 years older than me, a sister that's 14 years older than me. Nobody listened to me. And yet here I am. Would you, would you stand? And here they are, they're standing and they're singing. I'm like, all right, well, this, this'll do. Do you see? Because we have to make sure we sometimes think that, okay, and that fills us up. That fills that ego that strokes that ego. And that's, that can be a pride thing. We're here to serve. We're not here to be served. And here's this lady that by all religious and rabbinical standards was unclean. And she's coming and she's falling at the feet of of Jesus. None of the Pharisees, except for a couple of exceptions, none of the Pharisees did that. And the Pharisees were preaching about the Messiah that was standing before them the whole time. They didn't do any of that. Do you see how we can get off? We can get off to where we may feel like that we have reached some sort of standard of holiness that we don't need to be desperate and persistent anymore. We've arrived. No, you haven't. Do you know when you arrive? 
when you are falling on your face, when you see Jesus in all of his glory, when you get to heaven, that's when you've arrived. Because no longer are we in the presence of sin anymore. No longer are we under the power of sin anymore. We're going to be sitting there, and that's when we've arrived. Until then, we're always learning, we're always probing, we're always studying, not only the Word, but we're looking and studying ourselves. So now, we get into this last part, that this woman had a humble faith. This is the passage, these are the verses that have always bothered me. Why would Jesus call this lady who was trying to get some answers and trying to get some relief for her kid, why would Jesus turn around and call her a dog? And so, when we're looking at this, the woman, this woman had a humble faith, had a trusting faith. So let me, let me get this passage before us again. We're not in Luke, we're in Mark. We're back in Mark. And it says, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and to throw it to the dogs. Now, a little explanation here. So, any of you that have had a dog, um, we had to put our dog down back in March. And I practiced this about five or six times because usually when I talk about it, I get a little, uh, I get a little emotional. So, I've had to, I had to practice this part a lot because you, we, get, we get very attached to our dogs. And one of the things that I remember about Biscuit, he was a golden retriever. And one of the things I remembered about him was there was two particular foods that he really loved. Two particular foods. One was chicken. Right? He got a little taste of chicken. He became a maniac. Second of all was, was, was a crust, a pizza crust. Pizza crust fell on the ground. Kids were little. Pizza crust fell on the ground. He, he got that. And I thought we were going to have to take him to therapy. It was, it, was, it was serious. And so every time we had pizza or every time we had chicken, we had to be really careful. And if we were in a hurry and we laid the pizza crust on top of the, on top of the trash can and closed it and didn't, didn't lock it and get, you know, we, we had some work to do when we came back. Because everything in that trash can was going to be out on the floor. We learned our lesson after a while. But the thing was is that in the Middle Eastern culture, there, you were, dogs were not allowed to eat anything until the masters and the, the children had already eaten. The dogs were way over there. Now, if there were crumbs that fell on the floor, well, then it was fair game. Okay, so what does that have to do? Thank you for letting us know that little cultural tidbit of the Middle East. And thank you for letting us know that your dog was a maniac. Okay, great. We're knowing each other a little better now. But, the, but the, the lesson was this, is that when God decided to show himself into the world, he first showed himself to Abraham. He first showed himself to Abraham. And then everybody that was a descendant of Abraham, a biological descendant, they were part of the, the Jewish people. And then when, when that ended up happening and ended up going on, God said that he was going to reveal himself. Deuteronomy 7, I have revealed myself to you. You, I've been revealed myself to you because you're the biggest nation. I'm revealing myself to you because I love you. It was just his choice. It's just what he did. And so as things began to go on, it was talking about how 
we're getting little clues in the Old Testament and Jesus really brings it in the New Testament and then it really comes to fruition in Acts that God was going to show himself not just to the Jews, but God was going to show himself to it all, to everyone, even the Gentiles as well. And so when that happens, that's what Jesus was starting to show them, was that I have to go here first. I have to go to the children of Israel first and then one day I'm going to come to the whole business, but I have to go here first. And this is what the woman says. The woman says, the woman says, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. What does that mean? That means any residue that's coming over from the word that's being preached over here, and we're going to get some of it, we're going to take it and run with it. Because that, that part's for us too. And he said, yes. And so that's where, and you begin to read in Acts where Peter has this sheet that comes down with all these unclean animals. And finally, God is telling him, go and eat of this. And it was a picture. It was a picture of how God was going to take it to the unclean people of the world. And that the Holy Spirit would fall upon them. And they could exercise faith and, and, and believe and be justified and be saved. Which I'm glad for that because I don't have Jewish blood in me at all. I am full-blown Gentile, and yet I'm a recipient of his grace and mercy. And all of you who are like that as well, yes, that is a good thing that is going on here. So when you read in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to those who believe, first to the Jew and then to the Greek, to the Jew, and then to the Gentile. What is that saying? Well, that's saying this was the order that God was going to, but the Jews, by and large, the religious leaders, rejected him, which is why Paul began to say that not that not everybody that's Jewish is Jewish. It's those who believe. So in Romans 11, it talks about that there's this graft that, you know, uh, the, this graft of Abraham, this graft of faith, and that we who are Gentiles will be grafted into it, this olive shoot, and then we're going to be grafted into it and be able to get all the nutrients of grace and faith and believe. It's going to be for the world. Jesus' message is not just for one group of people. Jesus is for the world. And so that's why when we come about it, we don't look at people first and foremost based upon their political party or melanin or their, or their physical or their, their financial component or how tall they are, how short they are, what kind of shape they're in. That's not the first way that we look at people because we, by, by nature, we want to categorize people. And by categorizing people, we put those people into the groups and people do the same thing to us so that they can feel either superior or they ultimately end up feeling inferior. But if we begin to realize that we're all image bearers of God, all of us, regardless of political party, regardless of melanin, regardless of financial status, regardless of geographical location, regardless of any other affiliation, that we are all image bearers of God and that God sent his son to the world for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus is for the world. 
he's not a ter- territorial tribal God. And so when we look at this, we look at, we got to get back to why was this woman talking to Jesus in the first place? Well, because there was a demon that had possessed her daughter and Jesus freed him, freed that daughter from that. Let me tell you this, all of us outside of Christ, all of us outside of Christ are under that dominion. And Christ comes along and rescues us. Christ comes along and rescues us. In Romans chapter 6, verses 5 to 11. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God. In Christ, we are no longer under the dominion of sin. It'll tempt us and it'll oppress us, but it can never possess us. And that's, that's going to count for all of us, not just the Jews, not just you clean yourself up first, then I'll talk to you. You clean yourself up first, then I'll invite you to church. You make sure that you get your life together, then I'll tell you about Jesus. You got it backwards. Jesus meets us exactly where we are. Remember where you were, dear Christian, when you became a follower of Jesus? Where were you? You may have been in church. Well, I'm better off than the rest of those people who weren't in church. No, you weren't. It's just geography. We were sinners, lost and damned and destined for hell. And Christ comes along. Christ comes along and he rescues us. He saves us from where we we were to where he would have us to be. He's the one that cleans us up. He's the one that makes us right. So, where are you? What kind of faith are you demonstrating to Jesus? Is it a superficial, circumstantial faith? Or is it a faith that regardless of where you may be, even if it's in the valley of the shadow of death, you are his and you are continuing to to delight in him. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed church, from God, church of God be saved to sin no more. Ere since by faith I saw the stream thy flowing wounds supply, redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. Is that a reality for you? This is what Christ did for you. He's rescued you. And as he is rescued and as he's continuing to rescue you and, t- and kicking out the flesh so that his spirit would reign full and free, 
He has called you to an immediate faith, a desperate and persistent faith, and a humble faith. Is that the faith that you're exhibiting? Or is there something that's going on where you're making sure that Jesus has to fill these boxes and then then I'll follow? He's already filled the ultimate box. Look at the cross. Look at the empty tomb. Look exactly what he has accomplished on your behalf. And then run to him. Run to him with humility and teachability and intentionality and persistence and desperation. This is our Savior. Look at what he's done for you. Will you trust in him this morning? If you're a follower of Jesus, you may have drifted. You may not be exhibiting a faith that pleases him, but you love him. And this may be the morning that you're like, I'm going to get back on track with him. And some of you, you may not be a follower of Jesus at all. But I'm praying by the Holy Spirit that he will show you all that he has done for you and he will rescue you and save you from who you are and bring you to where he would have you to be. By his grace, for his glory, you'll see it happen. Will you trust in him this morning? Heavenly Father, guide us in all that we do and say, use us, Lord. Lord, there's so many things that may be distracting us this morning from your word. And Lord, I know even in my own heart that sometimes I come into the pulpit distracted and i'm thankful lord that you, by your word you allow me an anchor you allow me a tether and i pray father that regardless of whatever the the, detra- the distractions may be i pray father that i would never detract from our walk with you help us lord to make sure that we are doing what you've called us to do that we are exhibiting and demonstrating and living a faith living out of faith that pleases you Help us, Lord, in all that we do and say. Use us for your glory, Lord. And if there's any, any decisions, anything that we need to do this morning to get right with you, whatever that may be, I pray, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, you would open up our hearts to show us what that might be. Thank you for your word. Thank you for not giving up on us. Thank you, Lord, for always working, even when we think you're silent. Thank you, Lord, for never being absent. Use us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to be singing a 